Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. All right, so. Hi. Most exciting news, I've got a new phone. I had the 8S or something, some 8 phone. And because I uh, make a lot of business calls, <laughs> my battery started to swell in my phone and pushed my screen up. By business calls, do you mean random YouTube channels that you No, no, like multiple million dollar, like heavy, like very stressful, like lots of money being pushed around and, you know, very important people. I can't talk about a lot of it. I don't really believe you because you're laying in your bed right now and it's four in the afternoon. (laughs) Oh, really? There's not Cheez-Its next to me right now? Hmm. (laughs) Okay. Um, So you like your new phone, the 11, which I... Yeah, I got the 11, the regular 11 uh, over Thanksgiving break. Um, That you're paying for yourself. That I'm paying for my for myself, except for my phone bill and everything else. Because you have life. a new job. Because I have a new job. Yeah, I work at the. Uh, I don't work anywhere. I guess. <laughs> I work at uh, music venues, doing like live sound now, which is really cool. I'm getting to learn a lot and be very, running around, picking things up, getting home late, starting not early, but, you know, I go at like three and I set up for, a show. All the microphones, all the monitors, all the amps, and, like everything up. Hang out with the band, unless they're like. And you, what was the la- the last show you did was what was it Ace? The last one I did was Ace Freely of Kiss, which was cool. But he didn't. Before that, I'd, I had the association, with very old old band, which was cool. That I got to hang out with them, but Ace Freely, he just you know. Doesn't hang. Nope, doesn't hang. Does he wear a team of guys come in with the band? The guitar player for Cheap Trick was there. I don't know if I told you that. No. He played. He played for. Uh, for them so it was cool to see him that's cool yeah um yeah he has a dude soundcheck his vocals for him his guitar tech uh and then he just comes in does the show signs some autographs and leaves cool didn't even see well he's oh he went on a trump rant during the middle of the show i forgot to tell you about that really yeah he was like these damn democrats and then somebody was like like basically like if you like gun something about gun control and he was like ah i don't give a like just rod just like <laughs> screaming over them in the microphone and then they would just like launch into a rock song <laughs> now i don't support trump but it was kind of epic <laughs> not gonna lie cool <laughs> oh, and there was the drunkest dude sitting next to me obviously and his friends were like dial it back buddy and he was like yeah woo! <laughs> oh la is so fun huh. yep maybe more homeless stories or transient um, stories. <laughs> okay, well, last night, um, maybe we shouldn't have a transient section of the podcast. <laughs> well, it's a big part of my life, so it I think we should. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the LA, the LA homeless at, scene is real, people. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's real. <laughs> I was schmoozing at a very like small. I don't even know what it was. Let's say a screening, little mini party thing at like a restaurant. You know, you know how it's like a restaurant and it has like a back room. Yeah. And that's where they were doing like like playing clips and I want to thank this person and oh, I'm taking pictures and all that stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this dude who came, comes up to me he's, tells me he's a musician. He's and first of all, one thing I hate is people that you have a conversation with where you can't understand what they're saying. So they're like, yeah, and then you have to be like, because they're was, such a character, you have he to be like, so ah, drunk. Huh. was he? Huh? He was so drunk, or he was just nah, cuckoo. just he's just a dude. I mean, maybe he was drunk, but it's just a dude that seems like he's done a bunch of drugs, oh. drank a whole bunch in his life. He's like probably in his seventies now, mm-hmm. and he's just like chilling, yeah, out of his mind a little bit, but cool, you know, uh, just talking BS. And he was like, yeah, man, you a musician? And I was like, yeah, I play guitar. And he's like, ah, oh, me too. I keyboard. I play keyboard for the Wu Tang Clan. And I was like, nice. oh, cool. Already don't believe you. Oh, you didn't um, believe him? <laughs> yeah, and then he, like, said he's, like, 
I was like, well, what's your name? And he was like, ah, look me up on TMZ. And then he said his name. He's like, but I didn't do it. Like, just saying, like, what? random stuff. TMZ. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was, <laughs> like, by the way, he wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> he crushed your no, party. No, and I know. That's what I, that's what I was <laughs> – it was so funny. And the next thing he said was, ah, I played for the Who for a little bit. And I was like, okay, no, you didn't. You played for the um, Who. That's going to be and you, and I was in, like, you in 60 years just rattling, yeah, rattling off random stuff because you're <laughs> I was crazy. like – I was like, oh, that's cool, man. I'm going to like, I'm probably going to Snoop Dogg tomorrow, and he has, tomorrow night. And he was like, oh, I'll be there. <laughs> and I was like, again, no, you won't. That's three in a row of no, you will not do any of those things. What did you think about that Snoop Dogg um, press conference? This, okay. Uh, I mean, we haven't talked about it on here yet. So we went to a Snoop Dogg press conference for his new tour for his new album. Right. right? Uh, n- okay. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember. I was yeah, so, well, I couldn't understand between all the F and, and this and F and, and yeah this and the smoke and the, you know, the smoke Snoop I was, Dogg always says that I was you just, know I was just uh, in awe it was awesome uh yeah so there were a bunch of famous dogs there which was cool <laughs> literally for some reason um <laughs> and uh yes yeah, so it was Bentley, for Bentley the Palm was there mm-hmm. and then some husky was there but I can't remember his name legitimate yes. legitimate dogs Instagram dogs yeah, things that you see them and you go, oh, that's cute, but also it makes you so sad because what is, like, the world coming to? Mm-hmm. But anyways. Um, well, I was all about it because I thought it was awesome. And I didn't <laughs> think I'd geek out about an internet dog, but I totally did. And yeah, I it was cooler seeing the dogs than it's Snip Dog. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, but, okay, so it was for, uh, he made an album, and he's never toured an album before. Like, you have, like, uh Not since his first one, he said, or since, like yeah. N- well, yeah. But because he has so many hits, I guess, that he would just have to do, like, all of his songs from multiple right, albums. So he's but just he's gonna still going to do that. Album. Yep. But also he's going to play the full album. Like, I don't think he's uh, – he, I think he meant he's never played, like, his full album right, exactly. on a tour before. Like, we right. saw Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds right. and other songs. He's right. never done something like that before. Right. Um, but it was cool. Uh, lots of, you know, marijuana smoke around eight-year-olds, which was the weirdest thing I've probably ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was very uncomfortable and felt like my two worlds colliding. <laughs> just kidding. Um well, speaking, let's, yeah, let's transition. Weird. Let's speaking of marijuana-filled fun times. Today we're going to talk about we're going to go in like a fun direction because we kind of yeah. spent uh, November or j- October, November early November um, about sad things. So we're going to talk about the monkeys, which is an LA TV show musician phenomenon. Ready? Yep. And Aiden watch. I made him watch a couple episodes. So yeah, and when uh, I have a, I have an anecdote about the episodes and stuff. Whenever you want me to cut in, just tell me because it was very weird. Well, I'm gonna talk about some episodes coming up in a second. You can just bust in right then. All right, cool. So in the mid '60s, during the Beatle phenomenon, uh, two guys, Bob Raffleson and Bert Schneider, were looking to create a TV series that reflected on the attitudes of the burgeoning youth culture, aka probably hippies, drugs, all that fun stuff. So on September 8th, 1965, they took an ad out in Variety magazine requesting, quote, spirited Ben Frank types, or as one of the monkeys, Davy Jones specifically put it, long-haired beatnik weirdos. Mm. The ad said, quote, madness, all in caps. Auditions, folk musician, singers for acting roles in new TV series, running parts for four insane boys, age 17 to 21. Um want spirited ben frank types have courage to work must come down for interview end quote that's the whole ad the come down for interview was a nod to 
please don't be high for the audition, apparently. <laughs> that was a little like reference to that on the sly. The worst rule ever. <laughs> so Ben Franks was a favorite 24-hour restaurant coffee shop hangout in the 60s on Sunset. Um, Frank Zappa used to go there a lot, and the Stones would go there. Uh, the building is still on Sunset. It's specifically 8585 Sunset and is one of the remaining Googie architecture buildings in the area, which we talked about in a short episode. Well, what is 8585 Sunset? It is mean? Mel's Drive-In, oh, where we really? eat all the time. <laughs> like, the one by ho- like the one by uh, like yeah. like Hollywood Boulevard or yeah. the one that's on, no, the one Sunset, on Sunset Boulevard? Sunset. Yeah, down by th- on, uh, right by Sunset Plaza and stuff, okay. or in Sunset Plaza. I know, right? I was like, oh my god, I've eaten there a million times, and yeah, that's, weird. that's crazy. I had no idea that was like a, was Ben Franks. What is, but what is 8585? Oh, that's an address. Yeah. That's oh, it. Is, I thought you were like talking about like 85, like it's separate number, 85, like latitude and longitude. Uh, I, you uh, just got me very confused <laughs> for some reason. I was like, is there another way to know where I am in the world now? Are you high? <laughs> What's going no, on? No, I'm just very into uh, directions. I like being <laughs> able to get around without looking at like Google Maps or anything. So you had oh. me intrigued. Are you on a boat? Okay. Um, I do like boats. So Raffleson and Raffles, Raffleson and Snyder imagined a situation comedy in which four piece, a four-piece band had wacky adventures every week and occasionally burst into song. The NBC network uh, liked the idea, and production began on The Monkees in early 1966. Don Krishner, a music business veteran who was a top executive at Cole Gems Records, a label affiliated with Columbia Screen Gems, was appointed music coordinator for the series, and Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, a producing and songwriting team, signed on to handle most of the day-to-day chores of creating music for the show's fictive band. So it was a fake band. Um, with actors, you know, playing musicians, but actually had musical backgrounds. The Hey Hey, Where the Monkeys theme song, which I'm going to play in one second, was written by Tommy Boyce and Brian Bobby Hart. So I'm going to play that, and once you hear it, it literally never leaves your head. Um, oh no, did I not put it on here? Hold on, I'll find it. Okay. I've been watching a lot of Howard Stern clips, by the way. For some reason, I'm fascinated with that whole thing, just off topic, to fill the uh, dead air that you're creating. Why don't we... Oh, sorry. Why Howard Stern? I don't know. I saw... I started watching, um, like, a Paul McCartney interview with him or something because you said that he interviews very well, and I found that fascinating. So I started watching clips, and then I... Now I'm becoming obsessed with, like, watching him bash the guy Gary, Baba Booey, and, like, all these guys, Sal... And he just like is such an asshole to them. It's so funny to me. <laughs> That's He's so weird. So okay, I am sorry. This is taking so long. I what are you What are you trying to find? I, right well, now? I have to pull it up on YouTube. So sorry. Uh, okay. We might have to edit this out a little bit. And now my wife is. Everybody, right. everybody, uh, comment on our social media how your Thanksgiving was. If you celebrate Thanksgiving, <laughs> and if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, what was the most recent holiday you celebrated? <laughs> and how does that affect your culture? Wow. Okay. Here's <laughs> Here's Hey Hey. That were the monkeys. Ready? I'm a natural. You're a natural, thanks. Yeah.
There you go. That's the theme song. That's like the uh, 60s version of Bad Guy by Billie Eilish. Oh, really? No. Oh. I'm just saying that because they're saying that they're monkeys and they're monkeying around. Monkeying around. Billie Eilish just says that she's a bad guy. Uh, I don't get that at all because I apparently (laughs) am old. (laughs) I don't think it actually makes sense. (laughs) Again, I think you're doing drugs. Okay. So the first one cast as a monkey was Davy Jones. He was on Broadway uh, at the time in a show called Oliver, which everybody probably knows. And um, he was born in England, in Manchester in 1945. And he appeared on um, some early TV shows as a kid. One was Coronation Street, which is a soap opera in England, which is like the American version of like Days of Our Lives or All My Children, which has been on for like 60 years or whatever. And then another show, uh, Z Cars, and unfortunately his mom passed away when he was 14 she died of emphysema and that kind of made him take a different direction he left acting for a while and became a jockey and his trainer was really um thinking that he was going to be like a great successful jockey uh but he also went to a production of oliver at london's west end and or was hearing about the production that was coming out and encouraged Davy to um, try out and he actually got a role on that and became quite famous as a stage actor at that point and he toured in London for a long time and then he went over to uh, New York and was on Broadway and then eventually was nominated for a Tony Award for that role and um, on February 9th 1964 he was on the Ed Sullivan show performing a song from the musical Oliver and at the same night um, the Beatles had their premiere, American t- television premiere on that same Ed Sullivan show. And oh, wow. apparently Davy Jones didn't really know who the Beatles were at the time. I guess he was kind of so in his own like Broadway stage, West End kind of mm-hmm. um, phase where he was like, who are these guys? But what's going on with all these girls who are losing their minds over him, yeah. over the band? And he's like, the takeaway from that was he's like, I want to be exactly like those guys in a band like yeah, that. Obviously. That's obviously. Obviously. So if you had any other takeaway, <laughs> it would have been weird. Be yeah. So fun fact, um, in 1966, future glam rock god David Robert Jones changed his name to David Bowie because Davy Jones hmm. was such a famous stage performer at the time. Hmm. There you go. So the next cast member or TV member was Mike Nesbeth. He was born in Houston in 1942. He was an only child, and his parents divorced when he was four. To support Mike. Wow, in 1942? Uh, well, divorced in four years after 1942, yeah. So to support Mike, his mom took a job. I can't do simple math, by the way. Took a job at uh, Texas Bank <laughs> and Trust as an executive secretary, uh, which at the time was the highest position for a woman in banking industry. So it was the secretary. Um, and then when Mike was that 13. The secretary was the highest position that a woman could get in the 40s? It was the highest paying position you could get. In, oh, at, wow. in, a, in the banking industry in the 40s and probably everywhere else in the 40s. Yeah, um, but when Mike crazy. was 13, his mother invented liquid paper. Yes, whiteout. Crazy. Let that, let that sink in. That blew my mind. Over the next 25 years, she built a multi-million dollar company and sold the company for $48 million in 1979. And Ooh. she died a couple months later, leaving Mike everything. Whoa. Yeah. 
That's wild. Yeah. While his mom was out being a badass, Mike sang in choir, was in drama, and wrote poetry. He dropped out of high school and went to the Air Force, where he got his GED. And then after the Air Force, he uh, went to community college and met his lifelong friend, John London, and they ended up playing together for the, you know, the remainder of their days. And um, they actually started playing music around Texas and decided to move to L.A., and Mike got a job as the hootmaster for the Monday night hootenannies at the Troubadour, and they played gigs there a lot on Monday nights. And this is where he learned about the audition for the Monkees, and Mike landed the role of the green wool hat guitar player who was smart and serious. So next was Mickey Dolenz, and he's an L.A. hometown boy. He was born at Cedars Sinai, which was then called Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in 1945. His parents were both actors. His dad, Giorgio, was an Austrian-Hungarian immigrant from, that came over in 1937. And he was a leading, he had a leading man contract with RKO Pictures, which was Howard Hughes's company. Um, He died in 1963 before Mickey became a monkey, um, unfortunately. His mom was also a movie actress in the 40s, and she had three other kids. Naturally, Mickey started acting when he was 11, and he had his own band in the early 60s called Mickey and the One Nights um, before he was cast as the funny drummer in the Monkees. That was his role was the funny guy, and he played the drums. So Peter Tork was next. He was born in Washington, Washington, D.C. in 1942. He moved to Connecticut when he was young and his dad was a professor at one of the universities there and he started playing piano at the age of nine and then he also because he was so proficient in so many instruments he kind of took to music quite easily he played the banjo acoustic bass and guitar as well as the piano and then after high school he moved to Greenwich Village in New York and became part of the folk scene there and that's where he met Stephen Stills who would later go on to be part of uh, Crosby Stills Nash and sometimes Young mm-hmm. and Stills initially auditioned for the part in the Monkees, but was turned down because of his hair and teeth. His teeth were so crooked um, that I've actually seen it mentioned in many publications, which is kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. So when the casting people asked Stills if he knew anyone with a similar Nordic look, because this part was for like a tall Nordic looking guy, tall and blonde, he, rec- yeah. he recommended Torque. And Torque came in, got the part, and he was the lovable dummy. Um, which is a persona he kind of developed while he was in Greenwich Village. Um, the act, so those are the four, Mike, Peter, Mickey, and Davy. Uh, the characters of the four boys were to mimic the Beatles in, in a, kind of a way. Dolan's was the John Lennon, Nesmith was George Harrison, Torque was Ringo Starr, and Jones was the Paul uh, McCartney character person. Um, in fact, after the show aired, haters... Uh, of the show called the group the prefab four because you know the Beatles were the fab four they called them the prefab four because they were like a manufactured you know band Mm. the show was had such a horrible budget the first couple episodes the guys had to wear their own clothes so when you watch the first couple they're kind of in their own gigs uh, digs gigs I don't know what they said that they used the same set and prop um, as the Three Stooges. Um, so when the Three Stooges were doing some of their short films, that stuff was left over. So in a lot of the episodes, you'll see Peter Tork wearing, like a, one of them was like a rabbit costume and a couple other costumes. And those were actually Curly Howard's of the Three Stooges costumes, which is kind of cool. Mm. And then to reduce noise on set, 
whoever wasn't in the scene at the time, they would lock in this converted meat locker because it was soundproof. But this is also where they did all their post their pot smoking between takes. So like they'd open, the, there was like all these accounts of them opening the meat locker door and like all this smoke would pile out. And then the next group of people would come out to do their like takes on set. <laughs> it's like dazed and confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the first screen tests actually were received really poorly. Um, and, you know, you can talk about the shows that you watched in a second. Cause it's, it's a kooky show. And so they re-edited the first couple episodes so the audience would get to know the guys a little better. So at the end of the first episode of season one, you can actually see it's kind of this, it cuts to this weird interview, which is a little awkward. Um, but they would do this occasionally when they would shoot episodes and if they were like a minute short or 30 seconds short, they would just do a random interview of the guys, like as in their like, chairs as they're reading their next script and then they would use that to kind of fill the time so they could get the get the show out um the first year each actor got paid 450 dollars an episode and in season two it went up to 750 an episode and the pilot aired on september 12th 1966 so right from the jump the actors um especially peter and mike sometimes who Peter especially, who had kind of the most musical experience, fought to perform their own music. Um, The show's premise was that the guys were in a struggling band, and each episode they got caught up in some kind of like Scooby-Doo-like antic or mystery, you know, like so like spies would be chasing them, or they'd have to dress up as women to disguise themselves from somebody. It was always some just kind of like zany thing that they Mm -hmm. were doing. Um, And because of this, I think they're persona on the show as being kind of goofy characters and the fact that um, they were like a form band on TV, a lot of the audience didn't think that they were musicians so that kind of followed them around for a long time which started to really bother them and the music for the show as I said before other people were kind of creating the music for them initially um, and a lot of the recordings in the first two albums especially were done by the Wrecking Crew and other artists which we'll talk about in a little second so um, the last train to Clarksville was their debut single, which was released August 16th, 1966. And that was on the group's self-titled album, which was The Monkees. And the, t- the album actually came out in October. The song was written by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, obviously. And Mickey was on the lead vocals and was fe- the song was actually featured in seven episodes. So that was the song that was played the most throughout all the episodes. Boys and Hearts band, the Candy Store Prophets, did the session recording um, with famous Wrecking Crew uh, guitarist Louis Shelton on lead guitar, who was on most of the Monkees recordings. So I'm going to play their debut song, Last Train to Clarksville. I'll be curious to know if you um, have heard of any of these songs.
There you go. That's the last train of Clarksville. That one. Wow, that's not the Beatles? <laughs> I know, right? That's crazy. Yep. Even the drumming sounds like really simple and like to the point, like Ex- Ringo Stars. Exactly. Drumming. That um, became a number one song, and it was on the number one list for weeks and weeks. Um, so two prominent parts of the show um, that people were getting like familiar with in the episodes where that was the monkey's pad where they lived it was their apartment and where they rehearsed and then their monkey mobile which was the car they drove around in so most of the shots of the monkey's pad were filmed at the screen gems lots uh, at nbc but the show said that they lived at 1334 north beachwood in malibu well north beachwood is actually in hollywood so hmm. people kind of get a little confused but the 1334 North Beachwood House in Hollywood was actually used for exterior shots. Um, but when you see the show, you'll see like s- some shots where they're looking out the window. You can see the beach, and they're obviously always at the beach, which is the beaches in Malibu. Um, and so a lot of the beach scenes are at different beaches a- around Malibu. And then the Monkey Mobile was the car that they used in the TV series, was a modified 1966 Pontiac GTO. Two of them were made. One was for the TV scenes, and one of them went on tour with the monkeys when they did their like national tours. After a 19, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, 68 Australian tour, one of the cars went missing and ended up in Puerto Rico as a hotel courtesy car, which mm. is super. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like after the, in 1992, the hotel sold the car for five thousand dollars, and no one actually knows how it got to Puerto Rico. It was just super random. The other car um, sold for auction in 2008 for $360,000. Mm. So in December of 1966, their next song that hit number one uh, stayed on the charts for seven weeks in the number one spot in the U.S. and was written by Neil Diamond. And Diamond didn't actually start performing this particular song until 1971, until after the Monkees had kind of been finished. Um, and this song appeared in four episodes and the session musicians recorded the song along with Neil Diamond, who actually played acoustic guitar on the track. So this is the song, I'm a Believer, which actually Neil Diamond plays now in his set sometimes. Oh, yeah. Shrek. <laughs> exactly, Shrek. There's I'm a Believer from Shrek. Or so the do you think because no that Diamond. that song was like, I don't know. So many people I feel like wouldn't know that from Shrek. That's in Shrek, right? Mm-hmm. It totally is. I think we've mentioned that before. I don't know why. Yeah. Like, do you think that because Neil Diamond wrote it, do you think that he like had a sa- – is he alive still? Neil Diamond? Hell Yeah. Okay, so do you think they sat down with him and they were like, "We're gonna put your song in this movie"? And do you think he like knows how much money he gets from that all the time? Yeah, I'm sure he makes like a decent amount of money from that. Or do you think he's just like gets like people like that that are like legacy artists that probably have like songs like 
in all these different movies and TV and commercials? Like, do you think that people just handle their stuff for them and he just like gets his share of the money, or do you think he's like all on top of it? No, you know I what I mean. He like, has people you think Neil Diamond it. wakes up and goes like, "Oh, here's my Shrek paycheck." No, absolutely. I feel like he never thinks about Shrek. A- absolutely not. No way. Um, yeah. That that's cute that you think that. But um, also, fun fact: we have a oil painting of Neil Diamond. No, actually, it's Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow yep. in our dining room. <laughs> just frightening. <laughs> that is our aesthetic at our house. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a couple, mention just a couple memorable TV moments from The Monkey. So what it was your take on the episodes that you saw? Okay, so I, I just have like a little anecdote. I, I just, well, I, pull, I pulled them up on YouTube, like you said. Yeah, all of them I are just on YouTube. Watched the f- what? All of them are on YouTube, by the way. Yeah, and I just watched the first one I saw. And um, one of the guys, they were like, they were going from like, so the first, the episode started out where they were like, three of them were just sitting around like doing nothing. And one guy was like, hey guys, answer the phone. Answer the phone, guys. And they wouldn't answer the phone. So he goes up to me, he's like, you know, what if somebody wants our services? We need like, we need to work. What if that's a job? And they were like, okay. And then he starts explaining this to them with a hammer and they're sitting at a table. And then he breaks the first part of the table off and it just breaks. And then he and then he keeps like talking to them and explaining that like, oh, you guys need to be on top of it answering the phone. And then he breaks the second part of the table, and then they scoot over because the table get, is getting shorter. And then he keeps <laughs> explaining. He breaks the third part of the table off, like, in half, and then there's no table. So then they go to a telephone person that answers, like, the operator. Mm-hmm. And then they, like, just end up, one of the dudes just ends up somehow working there, answering phones. <laughs> the first call he gets, he goes, who's this call to? And it's uh, this lady who's like, I'm going to end it all. And she's got rope and, like the bottle of poison next to her and like all this like suicide stuff and he's like well who do you but who is this for and she said who is it for it's for the world i want to you know deliver my message to the world and he goes they don't end it all and then all the phones start ringing and then she's he's like picking up different ones putting them down and then going back to her and then she's like tra- trying to save her he doesn't know what's going on and then he gets so many calls that he gets like caught up and then the scene just ends <laughs> so she just killed herself like there's no follow-up i don't know I was like, and it was the first thing I saw. I was like, this is wacky. <laughs> it was very weird and strange. You forget, like, growing up, those weird scenes like that are yeah. so inappropriate and would never fly now. But no. we, all of us that are in our fi- like 40s and 50s, grew up with, like, images like that and being like, oh, it's funny, <laughs> haha, it's not a big deal. Yeah. So that's why we're all crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It's super weird. Yeah, she was, like, just going to kill herself, and then she just did, I guess. Like, <laughs> there was no end to it. There's like, no it was like, haha, she's going to kill herself. I'm not laughing did. at her killing herself. I'm laughing because it's just oh, obviously, the yeah, ridiculous just episode. Okay, so, because I've seen all of them, so. Yeah. So, in the first, uh, in season two, there's an episode called The Devil and Peter Tork, and this is kind of one of the most famous episodes, and the boys took on the boys meaning the monkeys took on the issue of censorship by slipping into subversive joke about how back in 1967 you couldn't say the word hell on network television okay so that was a big deal so this episode was a point of controversy between the monkeys and their production crew and the network um and peter tork was kind of talking about this in a, in a do- there's a documentary about the, the monkeys obviously which you can find and, and watch it's pretty cool so at the in the episode which if you go to minute nine and uh, 50 seconds they start talking about hell so in this episode Torque peter Torque's character has sold his soul to the devil he has gotten like a harp he like finds this harp that he's supposed to like you know and he sold his soul to the devil and mm-hmm. brings a harp home to the apartment mm-hmm. and 
So they say hell over and over again, and they keep getting bleeped. So it's like in the show, they're like bleeping it a lot, which is, of course, what they do all the time now um, on live television. And this leads Mickey Dolenz to observe, quote, you know that's what's even more scary. You can't say hell on television. And that's what he says in the show. And then, of course, they bleep the word hell. So the whole thing is like beeped throughout, which was super controversial at the time. Um, and NBC was super pissed off about it, I guess. So, and then in another kind of episode, which Mickey Dolan's directed, he got to direct a couple of the episodes, I think in the second season. Um, the episode opened with a, the Beatles song, Good Morning, Good Morning, which um, is the intro to the Be- Beatles' Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club track. Um, and Dolan said it was a big moment for the, the show and just in general because it was the first time that the Beatles ever let one of their songs be on another TV show. Mm. And when the Beatles finally met the Monkees, it was in London, as I, if I'm recalling the story correctly, and they were kind of like, hey, we're sorry that we're the prefab four if we've been, you know, whatever. But the Beatles were like, we love your show. And John Lennon specifically said he'd watched every episode. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, he loved the show. So that's, I think, why that's they cool. gave them permission to have it on, you know, that song on the show. So I'm going to play Good Morning, Good Morning by the Beatles. Good morning, like good rap. morning. <laughs> rap music. It's rap music. It's 1967 rap. Yep. That is a 1967 Beatles song. So the first two albums that uh, the Monkees had out were done mostly by guys who um, you know played for them in the recording studio. And this became a huge thing between the monkeys and the NBC studio execs and you know the executives on the show because they their point was look if you're having us be on this TV show we're a you know a manufactured band in a fictitious TV show with fictitious characters but we're using our real names and you're having us go out and play real gigs at these US tours and in England and like you know playing playing music and we're playing the music but people think we can't play. It's this weird, it was like this weird thing. And they were like, you know, we should be able to record our own music. So when we go play live, it sounds similar instead of having all these like seasoned musicians play. And then we show up and they're like, what the hell's going on? So they're like, we want to, they fought really, really hard to play in the studio and then live, obviously. Yeah. And that took that, you know, the first two albums, they fought the whole time, but you know, they didn't get, their way on the first two albums but they got some singing parts on that but this by the time the third album came out they were in the recording studio more um on the albums um even though they did have 
some help with like obviously um, the wrecking crew would come in and do extra parts and stuff that the four you know when the four couldn't do everything yeah that's very weird it reminds me of the uh, big time rush do you remember that show oh yeah 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 wasn't that on Nickelodeon I don't know yeah on well one of this those Disney or Nickelodeon yeah one of those it was just like the band and then I think they did actual they were actually a band mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if it's just because I didn't listen to their music but I knew them more as the show well, and this is the no. first time that, you know, the Beatles had had a couple, um, like, little videos with singles that had come out. Um, yeah. But it wasn't a television show like this. So this was the first time that something like that, it, this had, had, had come out. So I anything. Feel like w- I feel like they would have had more of a chance if something like MTV had been around, where they could have used, like, music videos as advertisement for their actual music and for their show, and had their show on MTV as a show i don't know if mtv was doing that back then but because they just had songs written had a show and then music was like a separate thing well i'll tell you since you mentioned mtv i was going to mention it later but this tv show was the precursor for music television so when mtv came out in the 80s um you know this tv show kind of like launched all of this like oh we could put music with tv we could put music videos out for each song we could do this whole thing because they played a couple songs in each episode and they would either in the song either be playing the music on their instruments in this while the song was playing like they were at a gig or they would have some weird montage where they were like running away from somebody on the beach or they were hiding out somewhere and there was like this little you know weird kind of like sneaky montage thing that they would do yeah during the song that they would play so this all kind of like launched that whole thing with music and television and everything so between 1966 and 1967 they put out four albums all went to number one the first two albums like i said they didn't play their own instruments um and the their self-titled album the monkeys came out in 66 and then more of the monkeys headquarters and pisces aquarius capricorn and jones came out in 1967 is that all their uh signs of the birthdays probably yeah and i don't who who knows what davy jones was um daily nightly which is a song from the pisces aquarius capricorn and jones album is one of the first rock singles to use a synthesizer which is kind of cool in 1967, uh, the Monkees had the number one album in the U.S. and the U.K. twice. So it, I don't know how that exactly happens, but it came back around twice. Mm-hmm. And then the Beatles did the same thing in 69. And then it didn't happen again until Susan Boyle from England, who was on American Idol, did it. But that what? was in like 2000-something-something. That's yeah, weird. Isn't that weird? I wonder if that happened because of their uh, show. Because of American Idol? Having like no, no, no. For the monkeys having oh yeah yeah well probably it, it really de- constant definitely for the show um the first album their debut album the monkeys spent 195 weeks nearly four years in the billboards top 200 whoa yeah is that like a record i don't know it's probably be not because i mean i can't imagine thriller and dark side of the moon aren't still probably in the top 200 but, but that's crazy at though. the time crazy i'm sure yeah yeah um, so the summer of 1967 became the height of monkey mania. The band embarked on a 28-city tour in the U.S. and England, and just five days after they won two Emmys, for one for Outstanding Comedy Series and, and one for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Comedy, uh, the band opened their tour at the Hollywood Bowl. And the Monkees' opening act was none other than, can you guess? 
Uh, wait, what year is this? 1967. I don't know. Jimi Hendrix and his new band, The Experience. Oh. <laughs> was that that show where, like, Eric Clapton and all them were in the front row and they were, like, they didn't know who Hendrix was yet or something? No. And he came out and he was, like, supposed to, like, he, like, last minute opened for them and then he, like, tore it up. And the monkeys are like, what the hell, we have to follow that? I'm pretty sure that th- that Maybe. Is that. I don't know. I don't know that about the um, Eric Clapton. But so, so Jimi Hendrix had just come off his huge success at the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, maybe not then. No. And he was trying to break into American audiences because he was already really famous in England. And his manager jumped at the chance for him to have an opening um, with, a, you know, with somebody like the monkeys who would bring huge American crowds in to see him. Um, it ended up being a, a humongous mistake, obviously, because they were polar opposites in the music, you know, poppy kind of teen, teen boppy kind of stuff, and then this psychedelic rock. So most of the audience who were watching the TV show came to the concerts, and they were with their parents because they were so young. So they had these parental chaperones, and the parents were like, what is going on when Jimi Hendrix went on? So the minute Jimi Hendrix plugged in his amps and started playing Purple Haze, which is what he usually opened with, um, the teeny no, boppers... It says, it says here that... Uh, Mickey Dolenz was the first monkey to discover Hendrix while visiting New York in the spring of 67. A friend advised him to check out this amazing musician in the village who played the guitar with his teeth. Dolenz was impressed but didn't, but didn't remember the guitarist's name until he saw the Jimi Hendrix experience on stage at the Monterey Pop Festival months later. Right. Oh, okay, got it. And then they opened for And then right. he opened for them. Okay, yeah. Okay. Peter Tork knew him, too, because he was in the whole Laurel Canyon. He, Peter Tork lived in Laurel Canyon and in uh, Beechwood Canyon at some point, too. And, you know, being friends with Stephen Stills and all those guys, he knew who Jimi Hendrix was, so he was super psyched about it, too. Mm. Um, so anyway, when Jimi would come on stage, all the teeny boppers would chant, we want Davy, we want Davy, or they'd say, bring out the monkeys, bring out the monkeys, and they would completely chant over his songs. So Jimi actually really loved the monkeys, and they were, like, thrilled to have him, but they both knew that this was not a good fit. So he made it into like eight shows and on the eighth show while they were in queens new york and this was in july jimmy like was done and he ended up throwing his guitar off of himself like whipping it into the like side of the stage and then he ended up flipping off the crowd and took off and didn't come back and that was it so he was done opening for the (laughs) monkeys jeez and it's been called one of the strangest pairings in rock and roll history yeah so the monkeys Last hit, um, number one hit in the U.S. was Daydream Believer, which was composed by John Stewart of the Kingston Trio, and it came out in December of 1967. Um, on this recording session, Nesmith was on lead guitar, Peter Tork on piano, Mickey Dolenz was on backing vocals, and Davy Jones was on lead vocals. So that's a big shift from, obviously, their first single where they were singing, but everybody else was playing instruments. The orchestral arrangement for the song was done by Shorty Rogers, who um, worked with the Beach Boys, and he included the same seven-note phrase on the Beach Boys song, Help Me Rhonda, on this song. <coughs> Sorry. So during the recording, no one thought it was going to be a hit, and they, people think that they can hear Davy Jones's voice being like, not into it because he didn't think it was going to be a good song, and Peter Tork thought it was going to be a horrible song, too. Um, so I'm going to play Daydream Believer and see if you can pick up that, like, help me Rhonda piano part and also if Davy Jones sounds bored. What number is this, Jim? 7A. Okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. 
There you go. That's Daydream Believer. I don't think we got to the piano part, but there you go. Okay. Um, so the show was canceled after the second season, but they went on to put out formal albums between 68 and 70 and with diminishing sales. I think the fourth album or the fifth album came out like number three on the charts and then it went down to like 100 by the, by the eighth album. Um, and in 1968, the monkey starred in a movie called Head, and it's considered one of the weirdest and best rock movies ever made, depending on who you talk to. The idea came from a trip to Ojai, California, which is north of Los Angeles, um, when Jack Nicholson, yes, the Jack Nicholson, and Monkey's um, creator Bob Raffleson smoked copious amounts of marijuana and put their ideas about this movie on tape recordings. When they got okay. back to L.A., they took out the tape recordings and decided to write the screenplay, and they took copious amounts of LSD. <laughs> okay. So to, to write a script, to write a movie, clearly you need to do notes, pot, screenplay, LSD, then put it in produ- production. That's what I'm taking then from this. Then filming, give the cameraman meth. Everyone cocaine. <laughs> yeah. So Hollywood style, here we go. When the band learned that they w- wouldn't be able to direct themselves or get writing credits on the movie, they went on strike um, and refused to do anything musically or whatever um, in the studio until they agreed to give them a larger share of the movie, and that lasted about one day. So not a big threat, but it, it worked a little bit, I guess. They also had a soundtrack um, that came out called Head, and naturally and that w- it's a psych rock album so it's a total departure from their kind of pop rock although the album did poorly among fans the critics said it was their best recorded work yet <laughs> the film didn't do much better um critics didn't like it and they said it was not geared toward the tv audience but towards this kind of more mature kind of pot smoking um lsd group um that wasn't really watching the monkeys tv show and mike nesmith said um at the time the monkeys movie was a swung song it was kind of their last hurrah trying to either remain relevant or they were just going to go down in flames which is what pretty much what happened at the end of the movie um when it did poorly that was pretty much it everybody kind of parted ways um the tv situation the creators decided they needed you know they were wasting their time and wanted to go off and do other things and the guys were ready to go off and do their own kind of movie, um, TV, and music stuff that they did on their own. So they all kind of parted ways. Um, but the movie now has a huge cult following and is con- can be seen on TV variously, different you know TV stations here and there, and also has a 75% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. So um, you know it's kind of now got that cult status. So I'm going to read you just to kind of get an idea of how wacky this movie is, I'm gonna give you an idea, a description of the opening scenes, okay? So, Head opens with the dedication of the Gerald Desmond Bridge, which is in Long Beach, 
And as a local politician struggles with his microphone during the dedication speech, the monkeys suddenly interrupt the ceremony by running through the assembled officials to the sound of various horns and sirens. Mickey then jumps off the bridge into the waters below, where he floats around unconscious as several mermaids attempt to revive him. The scene then transitions into the living room where they live, in which the monkeys are having a kissing contest with a young woman. They're all kissing the same woman, by the way. She pronounces the contest and them all even, no one winning. And then the opening song plays, filling the screen with images from the film. And the ending image is the execution, the famous Vietnam photo of the man being executed, shot in the head. You know the, the picture I'm yeah. talking about? It's called the, I'm going to botch the name, so sorry, but it's called The Execution of Nguyen Van Lim. And it's followed by a woman screaming. Then the woman screaming turns into not terror, but excitement as the monkeys take the stage at a concert and the audience starts cheering, war, war, war. <coughs> what? <laughs> That's the end of the movie? That's just the first part of the movie. Oh. Oh, my God. There you go. So I'm going to play a song called The Porpoise Song, which is the head uh, theme song or the theme to the movie Head. This is like when an industry plant goes horribly wrong. <laughs> I know, It's right? like the first, first industry plant. The band had talent, but they couldn't use it. Now the industry plant's like, I don't know, whatever, but that's just weird. Yeah, here's Porpoise Song. You get the idea. That's porpoise song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a little departure from their, you know, last train of Clarksville. Okay. So, obviously, at this point, everything has fallen apart. The guys went their separate ways, doing various music and acting projects. And then comes 1986. MTV played a huge role in resurrecting the monkeys when it ran a day-long marathon of the old TV shows. Um, I specifically watched these. I feel like it went on all weekend because I think I watched them over and over and over again. And I remember no one being home because I was a latchkey kid, parents at work. And, you know, we watched commercials back then, which I don't think you understand what a commercial is, but that's when you went to the bathroom and got food. So I remember just racing to the kitchen and getting back in time for the next episode because I was so enthralled with what was going on. It was amazing. I don't think you know what a commercial is. <laughs> all of our all of our Hulu accounts that we all have, everything has no commercials. When I watch Hulu on Sophie's computer, she has to sit through ads. And I go, what what's happening? I know. Well, because we got rid of all the commercials because they're stupid. Yeah, commercials suck. <clears throat> so uh, the band went on tour uh, and put out 
because of the success of the MTV showings, everyone was like, holy crap, that's right, the monkeys. And everyone freaked out. And then a new generation of people were like, who's this band, the monkeys? They're amazing. This TV show rocks. So the band went back out on tour at this point after it was kind of resurrected. And it had a, a new single that they came out with, uh, uh, the first new single in like 20 years or something. In 15 years, sorry. And it was called That Was Then, This Is Now. And the Monkees toured again for a few years after this. And, um, yeah, and that was it. And it, that was – I don't n- can't think of another time where something was kind of re- – you know, I know there was always reruns, we called them, where they would rerun shows. Um, but that kind of went nuts because literally everyone was watching that show. So, as I said before, the Monkees was said to be the inspiration for music videos, which maybe that's why MTV kind of had this weekend to honor them. Um, So it was very fitting that that's the show that it was on. Even the Jonas Brothers were inspired by the Monkees. I guess they have a TV show on the Disney Channel called the Jonas Brothers Disney Channel Show or something. I don't know. I've never heard of it. But it resembles the Monkees show in a lot of ways, I guess. And Kevin Jonas said that in a a 2009 interview that the inspiration for the show came from when him and his brothers watched the Monkees reruns for three days on MTV. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? That's cool. So there's two internet rumors I'm going to talk about with the the Monkees. One, of course, it would not be an episode if we didn't bring up Charles Manson. (laughs) He, like, literally is everywhere. (laughs) It's like, go away. He was, uh, it was rumored that he had auditioned for the Monkees, but this is completely false. He was actually in prison during the auditions. And then the second rumor, which was actually started by Mike Nesmith in 1977, which he told a reporter, which I'll go into the whole thing. There's a rumor, and if you Google this, it's all over Google and all over the internet. Um, he said that the Monkees outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in 1967, which is false. So what happened was, and he told this story in his autobiography, Infinite Tuesday, that in 1977, while the monkeys were in Australia, Mike was being interviewed, and he told the reporter that he was going to lie. He sat down. <laughs> he had, he, had mis- he was mistrust of the reporters at this point, and he said, quote, as we sat down for the interview, before he asked the first question, I told him that I was going to lie to him. He was taken aback, then seemed a little nonplussed and asked why. I said it was because I didn't trust the press, that I didn't expect him to tell the truth, so neither would I. So he told the reporter that in 1967, the Monkees outsold the Beatles and Rolling Stones combined 35 million records. Wow. So, and then that was it. And then he said, when he left the interview, he started to feel a little guilty, like, oh shit, maybe I went too far. You know, he's obviously going to do his research and realize that I lied and he's not going to print it. But it literally was in the news the next week. Of course. Or like the next day or something. And he was like, these guys are idiots. This just proves. So he just let it go because he was like, that's their own fault. And this inter- – so this lie is still being reported as of 2017. So I was hard-pressed yeah. to find the actual story except for his book. <clears throat> so you can find this falsehood in Wikipedia, Rolling Stone magazine, the Daily Mail – the Washington Post, Vice printed it in 2016, and then there's a Mental Floss article that printed it in 2017. So that shows you that literally journalists do not fact check, which is rule number one, because I went to journalism school. So there you go. So the fact wasn't completely way off base, but 
they did outsell the Beatles in 1967, and there's people that have all these reasonings why, because the Beatles weren't didn't have an album that year. I don't, I can't remember what they all were, but it was basically like there was a reason why they did outsell the Beatles that year. Um, but it definitely was not the Rolling Stones and the Beatles combined. But I could not. I tried to look up the exact sales for each band, but I could not find it. Um, unfortunately, Davy Jones had a fatal heart attack on February 29th, 2012. He was 66. Um, and Peter Tork just died this past February of cancer. So the Monkees are returning to the road next year, 2020, for a three-week tour dubbed An Evening with the Monkees. And it starts April 3rd in Vancouver and wraps up I April 26th in Nashville. And it will be with surviving members Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith. So, and they're going to spotlight all the songs from their career. So that'll be kind of cool. So check that out cool. if you guys are interested in the monkeys. And as I said, all their episodes are on YouTube. So if you're dabbling in recreational things and you wanted to see something kind of trippy or if you're interested, I'm not promoting anything, but just... <laughs> <laughs> or if you're just looking for something crazy because you're sick of Hallmark Christmas movies, Nana, Pull Up, oh, yeah. <clears throat> The Beatles, or not The Beatles, sorry, The Monkees on YouTube. And that is it. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to try to have another episode come out shortly. Um, Maybe on, if maybe I'll finally get my Snoop Dogg episode done. We can do that. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Thanks. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving, and we will shout out you later. Bye. Bye.